0: Market Existential by Charlton's
1: Why buy Chinese stocks?
0: Many Western and Asian investors are of the view that any long-term portfolio should include China, and now is a good time to enter the market, given its recent drops. The MSCI China Index was down nearly 20% in 2021, while at the same time, the US S&P 500 Index was up nearly 16%. A large investment firm in the US recently increased its investment focus on China and urged investors to increase exposure to China by three times. It is an appropriate time to invest, many would say, not just in the Chinese market generally, but also in some of the specialized companies and sectors which are of interest. The view is that China, with its middle class of hundreds of millions, creates enormous investment opportunities. It's expected by some that offshore Chinese shares could rise by as much as 32% from current levels by the end of 2022. China also has many rising industries and is a large percentage of the emerging markets indices, roughly 37% of the MSCI EM index. China's e-commerce market is now the largest globally and is projected to grow even larger, still. Having held an estimated 37% of the global e-commerce market share in 2019, cafes, bars, and similar establishments generated $7 billion US dollars in 2021, which was almost 25% up from 2020, and is also projected to continue its growth trajectory. China is also number one in exports globally, and is allocating from 2020 to 2025 $2.1 trillion US dollars to infrastructure investment. It has the largest number of tech unicorns globally, and its equities are estimated to deliver close to double-digit annual investment returns over the next 10 to 15 years as the economy approaches becoming the world's largest in absolute terms. China is still predicted to produce long-term gains. Analysts have tied this conclusion to three reasons. The current bear market is linked to near-term policy uncertainty rather than a broader economic downturn, and other emerging markets have not been as depressed in 2021. And though there may be further regulatory reform in China in the pipeline, the markets reaction may be overdone. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began in early 2020, China's policy has been to use quarantines and travel restrictions, whether within a city or with other countries, to control outbreaks. With only a contraction in the first quarter of 2020, the country became the only major economy to grow in 2020. Although hotels and restaurants were impacted, the manufacturing and agricultural sectors were the least affected and have contributed the most to growth. Industrial production grew by 2.8% in 2020 and rose by over 10% in the first 11 months of 2021 from the same period in 2020. China's factory, activity unexpectedly increased in December 2021, according to an official measure called the Purchasing Managers Index. According to international surveys in 2020, countries applying a zero-COVID strategy had almost returned to normal economic activity. Their GDP was down only slightly, minus 1.6% compared to 2019, Meanwhile, the decline in GDP was greater, minus 5%, in G10 countries that had not eradicated the virus. Elimination, in the short term at least, appears to be a cost-effective economic investment with lasting positive results. In the countries that didn't eradicate the virus, GDP decline in 2020 remained significant compared to the fourth quarter of 2019, minus 1%. The Winter Olympics, which are due to start on the 4th of February in Beijing, may make Beijing the first city to have held both Summer and Winter Olympics. And the Chinese government is placing increasing emphasis on COVID-19 control in the run-up to the Olympics.
1: What are the risks of investing in China?
0: China's recent policy, as we've talked about, is the common prosperity policy. And this is clearly significant to the market. It appears this means that more regulations will be imposed on the market. The Chinese government seems to have put a renewed focus on the country's deep inequalities and is looking at national economic and financial security policies to address this. There are reasons to be cautious, as these sudden changes in the landscape could lead to unintended investing consequences. However, this isn't to say that there aren't still great opportunities for investors. There's a reason to believe that as the government is focusing on stability in 2022, it may increasingly be able to assert its influence with more predictability in the market going forward. It could also be argued that with China addressing the issues of cybersecurity, antitrust, and other social issues sooner in its development trajectory than is often the case, China's economy will also stabilize at an earlier stage than other countries. Another issue is the lower levels of China's GDP, which could potentially signal that investment in China would not yield as positive returns as previously. And there are investors who believe that China must be seen now as having undue investment risk in the light of the continuing uncertainties. These derive from tensions between profits and national goals and extensive regulatory actions, and the level of risk remains uncertain even while there is still strong growth potential in China. The uncertainties arising from the pivot in Chinese policy may have caused some foreign investors to look at the situation more cautiously, though it's certainly possible that the current situation is part of a regulatory cycle that the market will over time absorb. In addition to the uncertainties I've just mentioned, there's also a risk of inflation and there's also a certain amount of volatility in China with listing restrictions, law changes and rule adjustments on foreign investment as well as changes as to how money Can be brought out of China. Coupled with the recent regulatory actions in various industries, it's difficult to predict what happens next in any investment sector. It will be necessary to monitor policies such as national security, supply chains and inflation, all of which will have ramifications for investors in the market. And as investors come to terms with that, opportunities for investment may also become clearer debt both national and foreign is also a factor for risk in investments in any country increasing national debt leads to higher interest rates lower stock returns and therefore could get in the way of investment returns at the end of 2020 china's foreign debt including us dollar debt stood at roughly 2.4 us dollars trillion corporate debt was 27 trillion us dollars while the country's total public debt exceeded 300% of gdp China's public debt is already 60% higher than the average across other countries, and the debt to GDP ratio is growing at a rate of around 11% per year. As China's GDP growth has been lower than 11% annually for the past 11 years, its debt is outpacing its GDP growth. At the same time, according to a report by the Institute of International Finance in January 2021, China's outstanding debt claims on the rest of the world increased from about 1.6 trillion in 2006 to more than 5.6 trillion as of mid 2020, making China one of the biggest creditors to low income countries. Therefore, while debt levels may create reasonable concerns around investment risk, the debt level is not yet at an unsustainable level that would negate interesting investment opportunities. In comparison, the US public debt stood at 28.9 trillion US dollars in November 2021, and an estimated 120% of GDP. 53% of federal debt was owned by investors from the US, including the Federal Reserve. Foreign investors owned 25% of federal debt, and China is the second-largest non-US holder of US debt, with a recorded value of approximately 1.1 trillion US dollars, as last recorded in October 2021. Unlike China and the U.S., Russia's national debt is below 100% of GDP at approximately 18% of GDP. Russia's debt stood at $490 billion U.S. dollars as of October 2021. China also is facing pressures from overseas, and as we are all aware, current patterns show that there may be a shift towards deglobalization and some decoupling between the U.S. and Chinese economies. A few Chinese companies have been delisted from the New York Stock Exchange, while further measures have been taken to make it more difficult for Chinese firms to list on US exchanges. Another source of external discontent towards China has been the disruption of global supply chains, caused by China's manufacturing industries and ports shutting down during the peak of the COVID pandemic in mid-2020. This resulted in an international economic slowdown as cargo and ship schedules were disrupted with the most major bottlenecks occurring in the ports of China, the source of one-third of the world's manufacturing. In August 2021, Ningbo port, the world's third busiest, was closed over a single COVID case, after the port of Yantian, the world's fourth busiest, shut down in May and June due to 150 cases. With container shipping capacity down and some Chinese ports disrupted by COVID outbreaks, shipping prices increased and waiting times lengthened. The end effect is that it's become far more costly and uncertain just to bring goods into China to sell to customers. As China acts to rein in the Omicron variant, the international community has concerns there may be further supply chain disruptions due to lockdowns in China, resulting in countries' attempts to diversify or reshort their supply chains to lessen dependency on Chinese exports and services. Supply chain disruptions coupled with China's renewed drive for common prosperity may further affect investor sentiment in relation to China, especially with the increasing regulation of big tech companies and the property market. China's residential real estate market has deteriorated nearly 30%. And the sector's high yield bonds, which accounted for the bulk of Asia's sub investment grade corporate debt market, were trading at distressed levels in early December 2021. Chinese home buyers are postponing their purchases and risk aversion among creditors and investors is intensifying, increasing the probability of further defaults and leading the property market into what's been called a negative credit loop. Beijing has, however, been quite resolute in reining in the excesses of the property sector in the face of a sharper than anticipated slowdown. It was stressed during the online Davos agenda meeting that the common prosperity policy is not egalitarianism but rather a means to make the pie bigger for a more equitable share for all. The Chinese government also offered further assurance that all types of capital is welcome to operate in China in compliance with Chinese law and regulation and play a positive role in the development of the country. Another risk that investors may face is the possibility of Chinese companies delisting from US stock exchanges. If investments have been made into a Chinese company that wishes to list in the U.S., the U.S. Holding Foreigner Companies Accountable Act, recently enacted and signed into law in late 2020, would require Chinese companies to delist from U.S. exchanges if they don't submit their financial audit papers to the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board for three years in a row. The SEC's earliest enforcement of this requirement would begin in 2022, making 2025 the earliest time for companies facing possible delisting unless an unaccelerated law goes through, which might shorten the time to two years. It looks increasingly likely that there will be further delistings of companies if the US and China don't agree on a further memorandum of understanding exempting Chinese companies from some of these requirements. The law seems to be motivated by U.S. concerns about Chinese businesses having an unfair advantage over local U.S. companies, as well as anti-China sentiment, leading to calls for the U.S. government to enact laws to make it harder for Chinese companies to do business in the U.S. and to delist them from U.S. exchanges. Measures have therefore been taken to make it harder for Chinese companies to list, prohibiting investment in certain Chinese companies, requiring Chinese companies to disclose their financial statements or face delisting, as I've mentioned. If companies are forced to delist from the US, they would not only lose out on increased media attention, better analyst coverage and liquidity, but also increased enterprise value, all of which translates to lower costs of capital for both debt and equity and higher financing costs. An investor invested in a company facing delisting may therefore be looking at a company that could be facing a reduction of real value. Companies may also lose out on the chance of raising high amounts of capital. Since 1999, more than 400 Chinese companies have raised over 100 billion US dollars on the US exchange. At the same time, China appears to be encouraging Chinese companies to delist from the US. China's enacted its own laws encouraging overseas listed Chinese companies to list shares in China while at the same time remaining listed overseas. It streamlined the listing process in China and announced plans to increase the supervision of Chinese firms listing offshore. It'll tighten the procedural rules for listing overseas and require any company listing overseas to comply with China's laws and regulations on safeguarding Chinese data. It was recently reported that China is even deliberating on prohibiting internet companies outright from listing overseas. Although the U.S. has exempted Alibaba, Baidu, and JD.com from delisting right now, it's likely that many other Chinese-listed companies, especially some that involve national security or national data, may not be able to comply with U.S. disclosure requirements because they would risk violating Chinese law. It's also likely that all Chinese companies listed in the U.S. will face enhanced scrutiny by the U.S. authorities and may inevitably consider all available options, which would include Listing on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange or in mainland China.
1: Is there a difference between investing in China through funds and buying common stock in Chinese companies? If so, which option is more profitable?
0: So whether investing from outside China in stocks or funds, the structure of how Chinese um, investment in stocks and funds works is important. In relation to stocks, some Chinese stocks are listed offshore, such as in New York, Hong Kong or London while most are traded on Chinese exchanges. Most Chinese stocks available in the US are traded as ADRs, American Depository Receipts, and in most cases these entitle investors to foreign shares being held on their behalf at a bank. There's also a commonly used structure which also results in um, ADRs, but at the same time is part of a contractual structure with a mainland Chinese group, and it's called a Variable Interest Entity or VIE structure, designed to get around some of China's restrictions on foreign ownership in certain industries and assets. Today, there are around 250 Chinese companies listed in the U.S. and they're capitalized at more than 2 trillion U.S. dollars, with technology companies accounting for just over half of that at 1.2 trillion U.S. Mm. Alibaba alone has a market cap of 0.6 trillion U.S. dollars. Because of ongoing political uncertainty overseas. Some Chinese companies have secondary listings in Hong Kong, although some of them find it difficult to meet Hong Kong's stricter listing standards. Institutional investors have moved some of their Chinese holdings out of ADRs and into stocks listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. These include H shares and into those listed on the Shanghai and Shenzhen exchanges, known as A shares. To buy shares listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, investors usually settle in Hong Kong dollars, and this can be done in two ways. Investors can convert their own currency in their accounts to Hong Kong dollars or buy Hong Kong stocks on margin. Borrowing Hong Kong dollars from a brokerage firm with investments as collateral. Investors can also invest in certain Chinese A shares directly through brokers using the Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect and the Shenzhen Hong Kong Stock Connect schemes. These are cross-border channels that allow investors in Hong Kong and the mainland to trade shares on the other market using local brokers and clearing houses and offers international investors a broader range of Chinese companies to invest in through Hong Kong. Northbound investment means Hong Kong or other international investors investing through Hong Kong into mainland China, while southbound investing refers to mainland investors investing into Hong Kong. In the Shanghai-Hong Kong Stock Connect, There are approximately 2,400 stocks in the northbound link and 400 in the southbound link. And in the Shenzhen Hong Kong Stock Connect, there are around 3,000 stocks in the northbound link and 500 in the southbound link. Major stocks such as CITIC Securities, Ping An and BYD are available to Hong Kong and international investors through the northbound Stock Connect, while stocks such as HSBC, Tencent and AIA are available to mainland Chinese investors through the Southbound Stock Connect. Access however to the mainland Chinese market is only available through some brokerage firms and not others. The Stock Connect regime allows qualified mainland investors to trade in Hong Kong-listed shares and enables international investors to trade selected A shares listed on the Shenzhen or Shanghai Stock Exchange through the Hong Kong Exchange. Just over 50% of the companies listed on the Hong Kong Exchange are from mainland China, and they account for over 80% of the Hong Kong Exchange's market capitalization. The trend is that more and more mainland stocks are being listed on the Hong Kong Exchange, including so-called homecoming companies, which were previously listed in New York. In 2020, Hong Kong ranked second globally in total proceeds of IPOs, with a total of 154 new IPOs completed, raising a total of 397 billion Hong Kong dollars, that's around 50 billion US dollars, representing an increase of 26% in terms of funds raised compared to 2019. Hong Kong's current market cap as of December 2021 was just over 6 trillion US dollars. At the same time, the Shanghai Stock Exchange's market cap was also just over 6 trillion US dollars. Shenzhen's market cap was 4.5 trillion US dollars. And together, these three Chinese stock exchanges hold over 16.7 trillion in market capitalization, just under the New York Stock Exchange's 26 trillion US dollars and Nasdaq at 23 trillion US dollars. Hong Kong's legal system is a common law system, while the mainland's legal system is a civil law system. Hong Kong courts are independent from the government and the legal system has been consistently ranked high in Asia, scoring above 90 out of 100 since 2003 in respect of the rule of law and ranking second for judicial independence in 2019 by the World Economic Forum. The two separate systems coexist under the one country, two systems principle, a principle which also allows Hong Kong to maintain its own currency, the Hong Kong dollar. The Hong Kong dollar is a freely convertible currency and it's pegged to the US dollar, while the Chinese currency, the RMB, has exchange controls and trades within a narrow band of 2% above or below the day's midpoint rate. This makes Hong Kong an easier option for investment by overseas investors. The Shanghai and Shenzhen stock markets have restrictions on what categories or investors can buy stocks and what is available to them for purchase. Companies incorporated in mainland China and listed in either mainland China or Hong Kong can issue different classes of shares depending on where they're listed and which investors are allowed to own them. A shares represent publicly listed Chinese companies that trade on Chinese exchanges such as Shenzhen and Shanghai, and these trade in renminbi. B shares are domestically listed foreign investment shares. They're listed on the Shenzhen and Shanghai exchanges and are denominated in RMB, but settle in US dollars in Shanghai and Hong Kong dollars in Shenzhen. Eight shares traded on the Hong Kong exchange are shares issued by mainland Chinese companies and are subject not only to relevant Chinese laws and regulations, but also to Hong Kong applicable laws and non-statutory codes. They're also freely tradable and usually trade in Hong Kong dollars. Chinese businesses withholding companies incorporated and listed outside mainland China are generally referred to as red chips, depending on their ownership structure, revenue source and listing location. Many of these companies are incorporated in the Cayman Islands and hold Chinese businesses and are listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. A shares are generally only available for trading to mainland Chinese citizens. However, foreign investment in these companies is allowed through a regulated structure. Some institutional investors may qualify as qualified foreign institutional investors, QFII's, and only a group of institutional investors on the Shenzhen or Shanghai stock exchange have qualified for QFII status and can directly buy and sell Chinese A shares on the Shenzhen or Shanghai exchanges. A shares are issued in mainland China under Chinese law and are quoted in renminbi. For investors who are not QFII qualified, the main way to buy these shares may be through an emerging market fund or buying certain shares through Hong Kong Stock Connect. In 2021, investors seemed to switch from interpreting regulators' actions as only focused on a few big tech firms to concern that no industry was going to be isolated from the impact of regulatory reforms. Concerns that changes aimed at reining in the excess leverage of property developers such as Evergrande could lead to the risk of financial contagion. However, the targeted regulatory approaches impacting China's stock market are not unprecedented and offered followed by short rebounds in share prices, followed by broadly favorable policy actions. Funds that have a portfolio of stocks may therefore produce less volatile returns than investment in particular stocks, which may be particularly affected. It's interesting that there's been a bear market at some point nearly every year in Chinese stocks usually driven by some policy issue. Historically, investors have tended to be compensated for this heightened volatility with strong annualized returns. From August 2001 to August 2021, the MSCI China Index produced an annualized total return of 12.3%, outperforming the 9.3% produced by the S&P 500. There's also the option of not holding Chinese stocks directly but instead investing in investment funds. A single fund, usually a portfolio of stocks, offers a viable route to investing in the China market because of the restrictions on investing directly into the market which I've just talked about. However, most mainland China funds themselves are not available to overseas investors. In 2015, the CSRC in Beijing and the Hong Kong SFC introduced a Mainland Hong Kong Mutual Recognition of Funds Scheme. This allows Mainland China and Hong Kong funds that meet eligibility requirements to follow streamlined procedures to obtain authorization or approval for offering to retail investors in each other's market. In other words, once a fund has been authorized by or registered with the relevant authority in one jurisdiction, it is generally deemed to have complied in substance with the relevant requirements of the other jurisdiction and Can enjoy an easier process of being offered to the public. The initial investment quota for the MRF was 300 billion renminbi for in and out fund flows each way. As of late 2020, Hong Kong's SFC had approved around 50 China domiciled funds to be sold in Hong Kong for Hong Kong and international investors, but only around 24 funds were actually available to investors. At the same time, there are around 30. Hong Kong domicile funds available to be sold in mainland China. The mutual recognition funds scheme essentially provides a channel for Hong Kong and other international investors investing through Hong Kong to access the mainland China market by investing in funds managed in mainland China. With funds in China there can be a large discrepancy when it comes to growth and active management is particularly useful when it comes to China with active managers choosing and building a portfolio based on their own research. Because of the restrictions on direct investment by overseas investors directly into the a market, some overseas funds either have their own QFII quotas or they use the QFII quota of other institutions to invest on behalf of the offshore funds they manage into the A-share markets. Both the venture capital market and the private equity market in China have had a large surge in the past several years, with total assets managed at about 1.5 trillion US dollars in late 2019. Venture capital and private equity funds usually obtain their funding from domestic investors, though foreign investors also invest in both, with more foreign investors investing into private equity funds than venture capital funds. China is the world's second-largest private equity market and accounted for approximately one-third of global private equity fundraising in 2019, with almost $200 billion U.S. dollars in private equity fundraising. From 2004 to 2014, China's private equity funds outperformed the rest of the world's both on an absolute as well as a risk-adjusted basis. However, China's private market appears to be still significantly uncomfortable underrepresented in investors' portfolios. As China opens up its financial sector, it looks like this may change. In 2015, 17% of the country's industries were either restricted or prohibited for foreign investors. In 2020, that figure was only 6%. In addition to the opening up of certain industries, there have also been initiatives such as the Qualified Foreign Limited Partnership that was introduced to attract cross-border capital flows. The QFLP allows foreign asset management institutions to establish foreign invested equity investment management enterprises onshore. These enterprises can establish equity investment funds or other closed and private funds in the form of private placement, with such funds being able to accept domestic and overseas investors. Also, the funds can be converted from the foreign investors foreign exchange capital into RMB to participate in private equity investment in China. China's PE market is also one of the fastest growing markets in the region. Total private equity investment value in China rose to $94 billion U.S. dollars in 2018, up 64% from the previous five-year average. The market's growth has been driven by China's evolving economy, whereby more and more businesses are entering the advanced or mature stages of their growth life cycle, giving rise to buyout and special situation opportunities. These are expected to be ongoing in the coming years. The venture capital market in China is also growing steadily. Together, VC and PE funds raised almost 200 billion US dollars in the first nine months last year, a 50% increase from the same period in 2020. The number of venture deals in China rose 56% in 2021's first quarter from a year earlier, The fourth consecutive quarter of rising activity as startups pulled in RMB 354 billion in investment. Another type of investment is through Bond Connect. Bond Connect is an investment channel which establishes a mutual bond market access between mainland China and Hong Kong. Bond Connect allows Hong Kong mainland and overseas investors to trade, settle and hold bonds tradable in the mainland and Hong Kong bond markets through a connection between the mainland and Hong Kong financial infrastructure institutions. The Bond Connect consists of a northbound link, which allows Hong Kong and international investors to invest to buy and sell bonds on markets in mainland China, and the southbound link, which allows mainland investors to buy and sell bonds on markets in Hong Kong. Bond Connect's average daily turnover in 2021 exceeded 26 billion RMB, and its trading volume last year was 6.5 trillion RMB. The northbound connect has attracted around 2,400 global institutional investors and has facilitated Chinese sovereign bonds to be included in various major global bond indices, such as Bloomberg Barclays Global Aggregate Index and JP Morgan Government Bond Index Emerging Markets. So investors looking to invest into Asian bonds recently interviewed by S&P Global Ratings said that China was by far the most attractive investment destination despite concerns about economic growth and the country's relationship with the US and a growing number of investors were looking at buying Chinese onshore bonds out of the 178 institutional investors interviewed over 95% said they were looking to increase their exposure into Asia with bond connect being the most favored route into China their top choice of investment were Infrastructure, Transport and Logistics, with Technology and Telecoms as well being major areas of growth.
1: What are the features of the relationship between government and private companies and the PRC?
0: Like many countries, mainland China has state-owned enterprises and private companies. State-owned enterprises are controlled by the Chinese government directly, whereas private companies are not although they can also be under the Chinese government's influence, particularly in the case of large companies. Laws such as China's National Security Law of 2015 requires all parties, including citizens, state authorities, public institutions, social organizations and enterprises, to maintain national security. Whilst Article 28 of the Cybersecurity Law of 2016 says that network operators, which include telecoms companies, have to provide technical support and assistance to government officers involved in protecting national security. The National Intelligence Law of 2017 requires every organisation and citizen to support, assist and cooperate with national intelligence work Building on the legal framework set out by both the national security and cybersecurity laws China's company law also provides for companies to provide necessary conditions to facilitate the activities of the party In September 2020 new guidelines were issued for private companies by the government emphasizing the obligation to serve the state and to use education and other tools to, quote, continuously enhance the political consensus of private business people under the leadership of the government, unquote. However, the Chinese government does not generally micromanage private companies' day-to-day operations, and private companies are largely in charge of their basic business decisions. The government's overall aim has remained consistent. The government wants economic growth first and foremost for the country. Foreign CEOs have sometimes felt themselves to be under pressure to give the Chinese government a larger role in their companies. Again, this is a trend that began well before 2012. The US company Walmart, for example, which would not allow unions in its US stores, has had government representatives in its companies in China since at least 2006 and had government controlled unions even earlier. To the question, what's the relationship between the government and private companies in China? In many cases, it's impossible to tell precisely how close they are. But it's clear that the government holds a strong influence amongst Chinese companies and that companies see it as being in their own interests to follow government policy decisions. When dealing with the Chinese government, communication is clearly very important. Many companies, especially multinationals, have departments that deal specifically with government affairs. The implementation of government policies integrated into business goals is seen as facilitating the appropriateness of business decisions in China. This means that a business operating plan which complements public policy objectives is likely to be far more effective than one that doesn't. Western multinationals must be seen to abide by the letter and the spirit of the law in relation to areas such as labor, tax, competition, monopoly laws. The Chinese government appears to currently see the role of the market as a fundamental catalyst of change and is shifting its role towards being the facilitator rather than the deliverer. Businesses are expected to cooperate with China's policies as China develops horizontal business-government relationships, which at the same time are geared towards private sector-led economic and social development. When it comes to assembling a government affairs team in China, people with deep knowledge and experience of how the system works are important. It's therefore crucial to have a government relations head that fits the company's needs who can act as a trusted ambassador and communicate well with the company's executive level managers. An experienced Chinese government relations professional who has a deep understanding of government, a global perspective, connections across many agencies or departments, and who has experience in both large and small companies would be extremely helpful. A good government affairs team can also influence the overall strategy and culture of the multinationals in the right direction. Government decisions can be unclear, and in the past few years, the Chinese government has issued a number of new regulations with many laws that are still left with uncertainties. All new rules and regulations are published by MOFCOM in the MOFCOM Gazette. There may, of course, be grey areas in the regulatory regime, and if there's a grey area or a new area, Various government departments may have overlapping responsibilities. MOFCOM has, over the years, increased its communication with companies, especially multinationals, and has been providing updated information to companies through various distribution materials. A working committee has also been formed for foreign invested companies. MOFCOM has been inviting certain foreign companies to serve on the committee. This committee holds a meeting every two to three times a year and allows a direct line of communication between top-level officials and foreign-invested companies, where the latest information is shared with the companies, agendas of the ministry are introduced, and new policies or regulations are explained. The Chinese government actively shares information and its draft policies and regulations with selected multinational companies for feedback, because the multinationals are leading companies in their industries, or because they have established credibility with the Chinese government. For example, government consultation may include seeking feedback on proposed changes to the law. To be successful in China, foreign companies must have strong communication lines with not only central government, but with local governments as well. Local government offices exert a significant amount of influence on foreign companies' operations in China. The influence covers areas such as product and investment approvals, customs clearance and tax, and may include matters such as land use, human resources, and marketing. Given the influence of government and quasi-governmental entities in China, many foreign companies seek best practices to manage the wide range of government relationships. Continued expansion of foreign companies into China has brought a heightened recognition of the importance of communication at all levels, and many companies have a dedicated, centralized, corporate-level government affairs staff based in one location in China, frequently in Beijing. In addition to government affairs working at the national level, companies often manage government relations at the sub-national level, which includes provincial, municipal, district and county levels to support business operations in that specific jurisdiction. Sub-national government affairs work tends to focus on compliance and implementation to ensure smooth daily operations at the company's local facility rather than on policy development. Companies that have good communication levels with the local government may find that they can more effectively communicate when specific problems arise. A company may need to work with multiple local government administrative levels, depending on the issue. In general, provincial-level government agencies set the goals and develop strategies for the whole province. Government affairs work at the provincial level tends to focus on promoting awareness of the company's products and services to influence top provincial decision-makers and on gathering information about the province's plans for implementing industrial and other policies. In addition, certain provincial regulators such as Provincial Development and Reform Commissions and Provincial Bureaus of Commerce have approval authority for foreign investments above a certain threshold or in certain industries. District and zone government agencies are generally micro-regulators responsible for implementing the policies that touch on daily business operations, such as business licenses, tax registrations, import and export clearances, work safety inspections and utility supply. Businesses may also have to take a careful and deliberate approach when interfacing with authorities in relation to the scope and nature of a particular issue. Careful consideration needs to be taken as to the current stage of discussion or negotiation with a government department before each engagement. If the query is exploratory in nature, an informal conversation by a local staff member with a civil servant will often suffice for obtaining the necessary advice or information. Where there are more serious matters to discuss, a more formal meeting should be arranged with the authorities. For example, a special investment or cash injection requirement may warrant a meeting with the Ministry of Commerce.
1: What, in your opinion, are the main directions of GR strategies in the PRC now?
0: To summarize what would be a best practice guide for a government relationship strategy in China, well, understand a vertically integrated and complex power structure and all the stakeholders, develop a government relations strategy or direction, create government relations messaging that demonstrates commercial goals that are aligned with the objectives of the Chinese government and society, understand the role of individuals in power relations, hierarchies, networks, and status positions. Engage proactively and build communication channels before any critical needs emerge. Track and evaluate government relations performance and adjust strategies accordingly.
1: Does the party have leverage over business, and how often does it use them in its own national interests?
0: As with all governments to varying degrees, the Chinese government has legislative, regulatory, and policy power over businesses operating in China and has increased regulations and legislation affecting businesses in recent years. The government expanded the role of government in enterprises, and in 2017, the measures were further extended, as I've discussed, with the body overseeing large state companies issuing a directive to SOEs state-owned enterprises, requiring them to write government-building principles into their articles of association. In 2018, the Chinese securities regulator, the CSRC, issued a new corporate governance code requiring listed companies in China and overseas to include in their internal guidelines a new inclusive role for government. Many Chinese companies listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange wrote the government's role into their constitutional documents. China's company law also, as I've mentioned, says in Article 19, which applies domestically and to foreign invested companies, that companies need to provide the necessary conditions for the activities of party organizations to operate. And Chapter 5 of the Chinese Communist Party Constitution itself says it requires the formation of a party organization in both SOEs and private companies with three or more party members. In relation to foreign invested enterprises, the company law requires party organizations to be established, whether as a joint venture company or 100% foreign owned by employing three or more party members. However, no management or governance role is required. Party organizations may serve as a channel or platform to coordinate local employee non-work activities or management employee communications. In March 2012, the then Vice President Xi Jinping delivered a speech in which he stressed the need to increase the number of governmental bodies inside private business. The government's efforts to have a more direct line of communication with private companies have been fairly successful. One recent survey by the central organization department, the government's personnel body, in 2016 found that 68 percent of China's private companies had governmental representation out of a total of 1.86 million companies and 70 percent of foreign enterprises. In Zhejiang province, officials set a target in August 2018 to have government representatives inside 95 percent of private businesses. The government encourages companies to make their own business decisions and says that it wants to sit alongside local and foreign entrepreneurs and understand more about their decision making. Part of the reason why China may be concerned about businesses could be because of its focus on high quality development, which is the route that the Chinese economy is planned to take during the 14th five year plan for the current five years up to 2025. The high quality development of the equipment manufacturing industry is a top priority, as President Xi has said. The Chinese government has been calling for a transition from a focus on high-speed growth to a high-quality development model for a number of years. Beijing last year introduced its dual-circulation economic strategy, which I've already mentioned a few times, which puts a greater focus on the domestic market to drive future growth while adapting to challenges posed by an increasingly volatile and difficult-to-predict outside world. With outside pressures tending to restrict Chinese firms' access to certain overseas technology, as well as disagreements over various issues, China is focusing on efforts to build greater self-reliance in core technologies, including semiconductors and artificial intelligence.
1: What to expect from the Chinese economy?
0: As we all know, China has the largest population of any country in the world and is fourth in terms of land size. China had a labor force of 785 million in 2020, with about 463 million employed in urban areas. The urban labor force alone outsizes Germany's entire population by more than 500 percent, while China's total labor force is larger than the whole European continental population. In 2021, China's GDP was recorded to be around 16.8 trillion US dollars, Hong Kong's, by comparison, was around 370 billion U.S. dollars. The GDP of the U.S. was 22.9 trillion U.S. dollars and Russia's was recorded to be approximately 1.7 trillion U.S. dollars. China's economy grew by 8.1 percent in 2021 and China had a GDP per capita of 11,700 U.S. dollars. Whilst Hong Kong's economic growth was recorded at 6.4 percent with a GDP per capita of 48,000 U.S. dollars. Comparatively, in 2021, the U.S. economy grew by 6 percent with per capita GDP at 66,000 U.S. dollars, and Russia's economy grew by 4.7 percent with per capita GDP at 10,800 U.S. dollars. IMF's 2022 estimates predict China's per capita GDP to increase to nearly 12,990 US dollars with 5.6% economic growth and Hong Kong's per capita GDP to reach $51,900 US dollars with 3.5% economic growth. China's economy has staged an impressive recovery from the impact of the coronavirus, but it's now faced with numerous headwinds, including a property slump, energy crisis, weak consumer sentiment and soaring material costs. On continued economic growth, the World Bank assumes that China will continue its policy of suppressing COVID and to see 2022's expected growth slow to around 5.4 percent as low base effects dissipate and the economy returns to its pre-COVID trend growth. Real consumption growth is projected to gradually return to its pre-COVID-19 trend, supported by the ongoing labor market recovery, rising household incomes and improved consumer confidence. Investment will also remain an engine of growth, but its structure is expected to shift towards private investment as manufacturing capital expenditure picks up, offsetting cooling infrastructure and property investment. As the global recovery is gaining momentum, export demand is expected to keep industrial capacity utilization high in the short term. However, the contribution of net exports to growth will moderate in the medium term as import growth picks up and international travel, presumably but not definitely, slowly resumes in 2022. Despite the recent surge in imported raw material prices and increase in domestic demand, consumer price inflation is expected to remain below the expected amount of around 3 percent. This reflects the limited pass through of rising producer prices to consumer prices, as well as the effect of the decrease in pork prices after 2020 swine fever. On central policymaking, it's believed that policymakers are ready to maintain fiscal support should private demand remain sluggish and external imbalances further increase. Focusing additional fiscal efforts on social spending and green investment rather than traditional infrastructure investment would not only help secure the recovery and bolster short term demand, but could also contribute to the intended medium term rebalancing of China's economy. China has also said that they will commit to a zero carbon economy and at the same time achieve growth through this commitment. It was estimated by Credit Suisse that decarbonization will add around 0.6% to China's GDP by investment in electric vehicles, wind and solar power, and batteries. China would then plan to export these renewable energy technologies internationally. President Xi Jinping said that the policy of common prosperity, which he has introduced, refers to affluence shared by everyone, both in material and cultural terms, but is not the equal prosperity of neat and uniform egalitarianism. China's leaders have pledged to use tax and other income redistribution levers to expand the proportion of middle class citizens with middle income, boost incomes of the poor, rationally adjust excessive incomes and ban illegal incomes. Beijing has explicitly encouraged high income firms and individuals to contribute more to society through the so-called third distribution, which refers to charity and donations. Chinese officials in August 2021 sought to reassure the private sector businesses. Vice Premier Liu He, who led China's trade talks with the U.S., said that policies supporting the private economy have not changed and, quote, will not change in the future. A week later, the People's Daily Newspaper ran a front page editorial with the same message, saying that opening to the outside world is China's basic national policy and it will not waver at any time, and added that there was equal emphasis on both hands in terms of regulating industries and promoting development. In late 2020, there was a move to rein in big tech companies, which many of you will have heard of, which was followed by restrictions on other industries, and in mid 2021, there was a move to prohibit tutoring companies from making a profit. This was followed by measures to tackle healthcare costs, labor conditions for wage earners and tax evasion among wealthy individuals. President Xi in September 2021 reviewed and approved more actions to tackle monopolies and pollution and support strategic reserves social control has also extended to limiting the number of hours children can play video games to three hours capping salaries and discouraging fan culture in order to comply some tech companies have donated money to assist with the campaign for common prosperity the chief economist at Hang Seng bank china is of the view that the government is still experimenting and will have more clarity over time in relation to the meaning of common prosperity. But right now, it's not really clear what the meaning is. The Hang Seng economist also said that he saw elements of resistance and discomfort, but no organized opposition to the policy. In short, it seems that Chinese leaders are balancing control with not derailing a private sector that has been a vital engine for growth and jobs. The common prosperity goal may speed China's economic rebalancing towards consumption-driven growth to reduce reliance on exports and investment, but policies could also have unforeseen consequences for growth driven by the private sector. The effort supports the, quote, dual circulation, unquote, strategy for economic development under which China aims to promote domestic demand, innovation, and self-reliance. The common prosperity policy may be responsible for controls on different parts of different industries, but the continued controls on major industries going on in China, such as on real estate, tech, cryptocurrency, tuition services and energy, all come from a collection of different policies. For China's property sector, which has been a major driver of the country's economic and household wealth growth over the past 20 years, Analysts generally agree that the current uncertainties in the property market were a culmination of many property companies' fast expansion through highly leveraged borrowings over the past decades, triggered by regulators' stronger deleveraging campaign in mid-2020 aimed at curb property speculation. In addition, some local governments tightened oversight on property developers' pre-sale revenues to ensure that they were meant strictly for construction resulting in some developers feeling even higher liquidity pressure and increasing their debt risk. Being caught in a negative credit loop with limited funding access and therefore reducing liquidity, developers, especially financially weaker ones, reduced spending on land and construction to preserve liquidity for debt servicing. Severely constrained funding access and tightened bank control limited their ability to manage their cash flow and caused them to default. Sales have declined across the sector because of developers constrained spending and home buyers concerns over completion risks. Investors and lenders risk aversion has increased in response, exacerbating refinancing risk, especially for small and financially weaker developers. With land sales predicted to continue to contract in 2022, provinces with such a high reliance on land sales and high debt burdens will face fiscal pressure with a widening funding gap. The shortfall in local government funding financing will also constrain funding for infrastructure, which could weigh on economic growth, intensifying the policy dilemma between supporting growth and deleveraging. Though regulators have already begun fine-tuning property policies, analysts largely forecast that they will continue easing on things such as mortgage issues to prevent contagion risk to the economy. But they don't think that there will be a sharp reversal of the long-term policy stance to curtail property speculation unless it is to defend the 5% GDP growth bottom line. The reason why China is doing this could be because China is taking advantage of high levels of global liquidity in order to address real estate's reliance on high debt levels for growth. Regarding tech companies, new laws include the Personal Information Protection Law, which was effective in November 2021, a data security law which came into effect in September 2021, and Anti-Monopoly Guidelines of the State Council on the Platform Economy, which were revised in February 2021. These laws have collectively aimed at controlling tech companies' monopolistic tendencies, treatment of employees, and rectifying any data misuse issues both from tech companies themselves and from abroad essentially the laws are trying to reflect some of the biggest concerns across chinese society today which are also shared by many other societies online content control fair use of technology personal choice and algorithms and data protection These new laws seem to be attempting to balance the approach between individual users and internet platforms. And although this may be a good thing for end users, it will probably also slow down the growth of the technology companies. A New York law professor noted that the age of exponential growth in the wilderness for Chinese technology companies expansion may be over, whether domestic or overseas. As I mentioned, since November 2020, the Chinese government has been implementing changes in the tech industry. Guidelines were issued to control monopolistic practices in the internet industry. In February 2021, the final antitrust guidelines for internet platforms were released. And in April 2021, Alibaba was fined 2.8 billion US dollars and ordered to transform itself into a financial holding company that will be supervised more like a bank. Thirteen other fintech arms of firms, including Tencent, had regulations imposed on them similar to Alibaba. In July 2021, new rules regarding overseas listing were released, namely that companies with sensitive data with more than one million users must seek a security review before listing overseas, as well as stepping up supervision of Chinese companies listed offshore. In August 2021, Tencent and Alibaba started taking steps to open up their platforms and to unblock links for their rivals. From March 2022, consumers will have the right to switch off algorithmic recommendations on apps and see or delete the keywords algorithms used to target them. So for now, it seems that a gradual easing for both tech and housing is designed to keep economic growth within a stable range. So what about this year, 2022? Well, China's economic planning department, the National Development and Reform Commission, the NDRC, recently announced on its WeChat account that China will focus on the security and stability of energy, food, industry and supply chains in 2022, while effectively expanding consumption and investment, as well as accelerating structural adjustment and optimization of the country's industrial sectors. China's Central Political Bureau, the 25-member center of power within the government, met on 6th December 2021 to discuss the economic situation for 2022 prior to the Central Economic Work Conference and said the country will prioritize stability in its economic decision-making for 2022, showing that top leaders are deeply concerned about the risk of political instability. At the conference, policymakers warned that China's economy is facing risks from contracting demand, supply shock, and weakening expectations, and ordered governments at all levels to unveil policies conducive to economic stability in a proactive manner. So far, Beijing has been managing the economy cautiously. Throughout the pandemic, the government has been very careful about intervening in China's economic recovery. It hasn't cut the country's benchmark lending rate since early 2020 and has refrained from expanding the economy with stimulus, instead offering more targeted support to smaller businesses that have been hit by the pandemic. The People's Bank of China recently cut the reserve requirement ratio for most banks by half a percentage point in December 2021, which reduced the amount of money that banks have to keep in reserve and therefore unleashed about 1.2 trillion yuan. That's about 188 billion US dollars for businesses and household loans. This essentially signals that Beijing wants stability. The December 2021 Central Political Bureau's meetings policy tone adjustment also signaled clearly that senior leadership has recognized downward pressures on the economy and is looking to stabilize any possible market downturn. The PBOC also lowered the rate of the re-lending program for the agricultural sector and small businesses by 0.25 percentage points. The last time it was cut was July 2020. Economists suggest that both monetary and fiscal policies will turn from tightening to loosening in the coming quarters However, the easing will still be gradual, and it looks like it would be too early to loosen the controls on the property and local government debt. The current growth down cycle might only hit bottom around mid-2022, when more easing may come. This suggests that while Beijing is expected to focus more on supporting economic growth, it's too soon to say when to expect an end to tightening measures in the property market. A further cut of 50 to 100 basis points to the reserve requirement ratio could also come later this year. China will, quote, focus on ensuring the economy grows in a reasonable range and that society remains orderly ahead of the party's key 20th Congress meeting later this year, the Central Political Bureau said in December 2021. The Central Political Bureau statement didn't include the phrase, houses are for living in, not for speculation language that it used in July. The general tone of the December 2021 meeting seemed to focus more on using a more stable and growth centered language as compared with earlier in 2021. Further policy easing with boosts to investment and consumption are also expected in the coming months to mitigate the property downturn and to avoid a hard landing and measures are anticipated to ease financing for developers. Economists expect credit growth to have bottomed in October 2021 with a modest rebound in the coming months. Meanwhile, interest rates are predicted to remain on hold throughout 2022. Economists have further said that China could also increase fixed asset investment in infrastructure, transport and telecoms to boost growth. The current reserve requirement ratio cut is not aimed at small and medium-sized enterprises, SMEs, so there are expectations that there will be more low-interest rate financing schemes for SMEs, which will be part of the fiscal stimulus. The draft of the Economic Work Report to evaluate how much fiscal stimulus has yet to be released, but there are two large items expected in the draft, one for SMEs, another for achieving the zero carbon emissions target. But it should be added that while the Central Political Bureau statement said that stability and growth was the centerpiece for 2022, it shouldn't be overinterpreted as giving the green light for relaxation on public policy. In fact, it's been reported already that more fintech regulations are already planned. China's central bank indicated that strengthening regulation of the com- country's growing financial technology fintech sector, but will be one of its top priorities over the next four years up to 2025, along with promoting data application and green financial services. Regulations will include improving governance of fintech, strengthening data related capacity building, promoting orderly data sharing and applications, and building a platform to connect business technology and data. It's worth mentioning the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, which was signed on the 15th of November 2020. And it's a free trade agreement between 15 Asia-Pacific countries, including all 10 ASEAN countries, Brunei, Cambodia, Indonesia, Laos, Malaysia, the Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, Singapore and Myanmar, and also Australia, New Zealand, China, Japan and South Korea. RCEP was formally conceived during the 2011 ASEAN Summit in Bali, and negotiations officially began during the 2012 ASEAN Summit that took place in Cambodia. After around nine years, the RCEP was officially launched on the 1st of January 2022, ratified by 10 members, with South Korea to follow on the 1st of February 2022. Indonesia, Malaysia, Myanmar, and the Philippines have yet to ratify. This FTA, Free Trade Agreement, covers 30% of the world's population and 30% of the global GDP as of now, although by 2050 this is predicted to cover 50%. It is the largest trade block in history and also happens to be the first trade agreement signed between China, Japan and South Korea, three of the largest economies in Asia. One of RCEP's core objectives is the lowering of tariffs although this is to be done over a period of 20 years. Currently, it's expected that 65% of intra-RCEP tariffs will be lowered within a short period of time. But the objective is for 90% of total tariffs to become zero over time. The remaining tariffs are limited to strategic sectors that countries have not agreed upon any liberalization policy as of yet. The tariff reductions will result in a 2% increase in exports for the region due to the diverging of trade away from non-member countries compared to 2019 levels. On further analysis, it was noted that China is predicted to be the second largest beneficiary of RCEP, with an expected increase in exports amounting to an estimated 11.2 billion US dollars, after Japan, which is expected to be the largest beneficiary, with an increase in exports to around 20 billion US dollars. China is currently also seeking further regional trading agreements. In September 2021, it applied to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, CPTPP, a higher standard mega trade deal that took effect in late 2018 among 11 economies. China has also applied for the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement, (DEPA), launched by Singapore, New Zealand and Chile. Hong Kong has also expressed interest in joining the RCEP, which will allow further membership applications after 18 months. Chief Executive Carrie Lam in September 2021 said at the Belt and Road Summit that the city was keen to begin formal discussions on accession as soon as RCEP is ready to take new members. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations also welcomed Hong Kong's interest at an ASEAN Hong Kong meeting that month, saying that Chinese SAR Hong Kong is well-placed to add value to RCEP. I'd also like to mention another potential area of driver of economic growth in China, and that's the Greater Bay Area. Now, the Greater Bay Area is in southern China, and it's an initiative which was first proposed in China's 13th five-year plan. And a framework agreement on deepening Guangdong, Hong Kong, development of the Greater Bay Area was signed in 2017. And in 2019, an outline development plan was released, setting out more detailed steps on how to put the framework into practice. The Greater Bay Area encompasses two SARs, Special Administrative Regions, Hong Kong and Macau, and nine mainland cities. Guangzhou, Shenzhen, Foshan, Zhuhai, Huizhou, Dongguan, Zhongshan, Jiangmen, and Zhaoqing. Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, and Macau are the core cities, while the rest are termed node cities. Policies will be implemented to increase the connection between the network of cities, each of which has its own unique talent that China intends to synergize to maximize the productivity and competitiveness of these markets. As stated in the framework agreement, key cooperation areas of these cities include infrastructure, connectivity, market integration, technology and innovation, industries, quality of living and international cooperation. So the Greater Bay Area has a sizable and untapped potential And the region includes an area of around 56,000 square kilometers and has a total population of 86 million. The GDP of the region um, combined is about 1.67 trillion US dollars, accounting for 12% of China's total GDP, generated by just 5% of China's population. The demand for financing, asset management, banking, and insurance will further increase GDP growth in the region with an extended flow of capital and cross-border transactions. The Outline Development Plan has set out a range of initiatives to increase the scope of the cross-border use of RMB in the Greater Bay Area, including cross-border RMB into bank lending, renminbi foreign exchange spot forward business and the creation of renminbi derivative products. So what lies ahead? Well, China's growth rate is expected to continue on a downward trend due to an aging labor force, which is no longer expanding at the earlier growth rates and a slowdown in labor productivity. However, human investment and innovative technological upgrades could counteract this decline, such as raising the retirement age and allocating resources more efficiently. Geopolitics has also become an increasingly important consideration, especially with the uneasy relationship at the moment with the United States. China's medium-term prospects may be pushed lower the more both economies separate with regard to trade and investment. There are still currently restrictions on Chinese companies and laws that make it difficult for investors to invest in China, especially in areas such as technology, communications and biotech. For trade and technology, dual circulation seems to be China's main strategy. For finance and the extraterritorial role of the dollar as the reserve currency, a renewed effort to internationalize the renminbi, possibly with the help of China's central bank, digital currency, seems to be what China may be planning to aim for. A consequence for the world may be that China will no longer need to import such high end imports with obvious negative consequences for major exporters of technology like Germany, Japan, South Korea or the US. Also, the second aspect of dual circulation is boosting external demand and increasing the importance of the Belt and Road Initiative to ensure open markets in the emerging world. In essence, the dual circulation is part of China's master plan to become self-reliant in resources, technology and also demand through its large market, as well as that in third markets through the Belt and Road Initiative. Against this background, China's growth will not only decelerate further in the future, but may also be increasingly less shared with the rest of the world due to the dual circulation strategy. Another threat is financial decoupling. Both trade and technology restrictions also extend into financial and capital markets, with a list of alleged military-related Chinese companies prohibited from receiving U.S.-based investment as well as the continuing threat to delist large Chinese companies from the New York Stock Exchange made by the U.S. authorities. China's other strategy of making the RMB an international currency may take time as it currently accounts for only 2% of global payments or reserve currency. The first attempt by China to internationalize the RMB was centered on facilitating Hong Kong as the global hub for offshore RMB business. Efforts then extended to other offshore centers. Now China is enforcing this policy by fostering cross-border acceptance of its digital currency, profiting from a first-mover advantage. This is important, not only in the long run, but also immediately, as it may help China bypass the use of the dollar when and if needed. But the internationalization of a currency would need more than just technical preparations. It would also require certain conditions to be fulfilled for its global acceptance. For example, preserving its value through price stability, offering a large pool of highly liquid assets, and allowing full capital account convertibility for money to instantly flow in and out of RMB. The Chinese government would need to take additional steps towards this liberalization of the capital account in order to enhance the full convertibility of the RMB. So the key question is whether the digital RMB may help Chinese authorities to allow for more capital account openness while still being able to trace capital flows and act accordingly. This explains why the digital RMB's traceability under the design of controlled anonymity is key, as it allows China to control seemingly free financial flows. In other words, the digital currency could offer a way to promote RMB as an international currency while still keeping some control of cross-border flows. Another important challenge is for China to strengthen the RMB for trade and investment exchanges, particularly in Belt and Road areas. The impact of current policies is bound to affect China's potential growth post 2022. This will make the redistribution of income anticipated under the common prosperity policy difficult to predict. Bloomberg economics, however, is of the view that China could achieve first place in terms of nominal GDP currently held by the US and has been for well over a century as soon as 2031 depending on the productivity of China's workers and the efficiency of China's balancing labor and capital. The outcome, of course, is not certain. China's reform agendas um, have affected markets, tariffs and other trade curbs are also disrupting access to global markets and advanced technologies and countering COVID measures have lifted debt to record levels. With the labor force no longer growing at previous levels and capital spending gradually rising, productivity may be crucial to China's future growth. If domestic reforms, international relations initiatives and labour productivity goals are successfully implemented, however, then China may well succeed in its overall economic growth goals.
1: What is the current regulatory framework and measures taken in the field of state regulation of domestic, economic and investment activities in the PRC?
0: So let's talk a little bit about law and regulation um, in relation to investment activities in China. Well, China's legal system is based primarily, as you may know, on a civil law system, mixing elements of the old Qing Dynasty law code, Russian civil law and continental European civil law. The main law regarding businesses establishing a presence from abroad in China is governed by the relatively new foreign investment law, which came into effect in January 2020. This replaces the previous laws and regulations governing the three traditional types of foreign invested enterprises, which were the equity joint ventures law, cooperative joint venture law and wholly foreign owned enterprises law, the old FIE laws. In doing this, the new foreign investment law provides for greater promotion and protection of foreign investment, as well as enhanced regulatory transparency. In particular, the foreign investment law provides that foreign investment enterprises should follow the PRC company law, which previously applied only to domestic companies. The PRC partnership enterprise law and other applicable laws in terms of the form the organs and constitution and operating procedures of the entities. Prior to the foreign investment law coming into effect, foreign investors who have been operating in China for decades have faced certain hurdles on business establishment and investment treatment compared with their Chinese counterparts and have been restricted from investing in certain sectors unless in a joint venture with a Chinese partner in some cases. Also, foreign investors have needed to navigate through the old foreign investment laws, which impose specific requirements on corporate formation, foreign ownership ratios, corporate governance and operational management. Also, insufficient laws protecting IP rights and trade secrets, mandatory technology transfer, and lack of participation in the legislative consultation process were significant concerns for some foreign investors. The new law is designed to take steps to address these concerns and the foreign investment law, which comprises 42 articles in six chapters, focuses on foreign investment protection, promotion and administration and imposes legal liability on both foreign investors and Chinese regulators, if in violation of Chinese law. The implementing regulations, which are a key to understanding the impact of the foreign investment law, have also been in effect since January 2020. I'll now talk a little bit about some of the main highlights of this foreign investment law and its implementing regulations. In relation to legal liabilities, if foreign investors invest in prohibited industries or fail to comply with investment access restrictions, they're required to divest and or rectify their non-compliance and could face sanctions under the foreign investment law and other Chinese laws. The foreign investment law also imposes more strict requirements on government authorities, mandating fair, transparent, effective treatment and facilitation for foreign investors. Government authorities and personnel may face legal liability for breaching certain provisions of the foreign investment law and implementing regulations. Regarding investment promotion, the foreign investment law and implementing regulations provide that foreign investors are to be treated equally with domestic companies regarding access to government funds, land supply, tax exemptions, licensing, project applications, and so on. Foreign invested enterprises may comment on new legislation and administrative rules concerning foreign investment and only published documents may form the basis for the exercise of administrative authority. Under the foreign investment law, foreign investors have preferential policies in certain sectors and regions as designated by the Chinese authorities. Foreign invested enterprises can participate in government procurement through fair competition and must not be discriminated against in these procurement processes with respect to the products they manufacture and the services they provide in China. The law specifically allows foreign invested enterprises to raise funds through public offerings of equity and debt securities. These provisions aim to encourage more foreign investment on a more level playing field into China. In the area of investment protection, the foreign investment law provides that foreign investors' capital contributions, profits, capital gains income from asset disposals, royalties from IP rights, compensation or indemnity amounts, and proceeds from liquidation may be freely remitted in or out of China in renminbi or foreign currency. The implementing regulations disallow any restrictions on the currency amount and frequency of these remittances. And the regulations also provide for a collaborative mechanism aimed at facilitating the settlement of IP disputes and for the protection of the IP rights of foreign investors and foreign invested enterprises. Specifically, both the law and the implementing regulations prohibit government officials from forcing foreign investors or foreign enterprises to transfer their technology and require authorities to take effective measures to protect the trade secrets of foreign investors that they've learned while performing their duties. Finally, local governments must comply with policy commitments made to and investment agreements entered into with foreign investors and have to reasonably compensate foreign investors if it's necessary to adjust those commitments or agreements due to national or social public interest reasons. In relation to investment administration, the law works together with two negative lists in setting out areas where foreign investment is prohibited or restricted. So foreign investors proposing to invest in China have to comply with the restrictive requirements regarding equity ratios and top executives. As the old foreign invested enterprise laws have been repealed, and at the same time that the foreign investment law became effective, foreign investment enterprises are now subject to Chinese company law and partnership law, which have different rules on corporate governance, voting, share transfers, profit sharing. So any foreign invested enterprise should, within a five-year transition period, convert to the appropriate corporate form and update its constitution and shareholders' agreements, if any, to comply with these rules, which now apply to foreign and domestic investors alike. Given the complexity of the conversion process, it's expected that specific implementing rules and detailed guidelines will continue to be delivered from the commerce market supervision and other regulatory authorities on these subjects. The law also refers to the requirement for national security review of certain foreign investments in sensitive industries and sectors, a mechanism that has been in place since 2006, but hasn't been frequently used. So the two negative lists I mentioned are the national negative list which applies throughout the country and the free trade zones negative list which applies to free trade zones inside china the two lists are jointly released by the ndrc and the ministry of commerce mofcom and set out the industries where foreign investment is either prohibited or restricted the items on the two lists have been gradually decreasing from year to year and the newly updated negative lists which took effect in january 2022 both further liberalized restrictions on foreign ownership in the field of automobile manufacturing, removing the requirement that foreign investors hold no more than 50% of the shares in auto manufacturing. The restrictions on manufacturing satellite, television, ground receiving facilities, and key components have also been removed. The updated rules say that Chinese companies on the negative list may receive foreign investment to go public overseas after getting reviewed by relevant regulators to ensure that the businesses are not barred from listing companies still need to undergo separate reviews on their listing plans by the securities regulator and other authorities though foreign investors in such companies are prohibited from taking part in the management and their shareholding must follow the same requirements as for foreign investors in china's stock market that means that total foreign ownership in a company which would be capped at 30 percent, with no single investor holding more than 10 percent. Overseas traded Chinese enterprises that already exceed the limits would not have to reduce foreign investors holdings. It's expected that more amendments will be made and the negative lists will be shortened further over the next two years. Investors planning to engage in these areas of business in China uh, will no doubt um, continue to monitor these future developments. In comparison to the new draft rules, there are also new rules relating to VIE structures, that's variable interest entity structures, which were released by the CSRC, the China's Securities Regulatory Commission. And those are open for public comment at the moment until the 23rd of January 2022. VIEs had mostly been used by China's tech firms to seek listing on overseas stock market markets in order to avoid Chinese restrictions on foreign ownership of uncertain areas of regulatory licensing for internet. By using VIE structures to list abroad, foreign investors could not invest directly in the domestic assets and hence met the requirements of Chinese law. The CSRC's new draft rules now require all Chinese companies subject to security and data reviews for overseas listing plans to file for related reviews and obtain approval with other agencies for overseas stock sales, first before registering with the CSRC. Companies need to comply with provisions in the areas of foreign investment, cybersecurity, and data security, and a deal could be stopped if authorities deemed it to be a threat to national security. So, in essence, companies previously using VIE structures to structure around restrictions on foreign investment may now find that there is no need to do so. The new rules aim to provide a regulatory framework to guide Chinese companies to raise funds overseas if they choose to do so, rather than tightening controls on overseas share sales as long as they comply with related requirements and file with regulators. VIE structures, therefore, could face tougher scrutiny under the new rules. And it's thought that Hong Kong IPOs are likely to be more favored by domestic firms. The key points under these draft rules are that foreign ownership in a company is capped at 30% with no single investor holding more than 10%. Companies will not be allowed to do overseas share sales in five circumstances if they're violating national laws and rules, if overseas listings threaten national security, if involved in major disputes over assets or core technology, if major shareholders are investigated for corruption or convicted in the last three years, and if senior management are investigated or punished for major violations. Companies can be ordered to divest domestic assets to prevent their overseas IPOs from harming national security. And companies seeking overseas share sales should file with the CSRC within three days after they submit listing documents to overseas market regulators, including approval from related industry regulators. Companies seeking overseas share sales should file with the CSRC within three days after they submit listing documents to overseas market regulators, including approval from related industry regulators. Companies are defined as domestic and should follow the new rules if they have over 50 percent of revenue, profit and assets coming from the China market over the past financial year. If their main management team consists of Chinese nationals or their main business operating venue is based in China and Chinese security firms sponsoring domestic companies, overseas share sales should file with the CSRC. Policymakers did not specify which areas involving national and data security would result in reviews. But analysts said that new technology startups ranging from e-commerce and fintech to smart vehicles and biotech or any other area which has the potential to drastically change people's lives through digital technology may have their IPO documents more closely monitored and reviewed. There is no current definition for what is an overseas listing, but it has been reported that Hong Kong will be put under the offshore listing regime and that the CSRC has made reference to Hong Kong as being an overseas market. From the developments, it would seem that the provision under the negative list by the planning agency NDRC and the Commerce Ministry will play a bigger role than the CSRC's registration system in deciding the company's listing prospects as IPO applicants will need clearance first before going through the listing registration process with the securities regulator before being able to list successfully.
1: How does China simulate the country's economy, including entrepreneurial activity?
0: In recent years, China has increased support for small businesses and pledged better use of local government bonds as the economy showed signs of a slowdown because of tight property controls and fresh COVID virus outbreaks. The PBOC will provide 300 billion yuan around 46.4 billion US dollars of low-cost funding to banks so they can lend to SMEs. Other measures include interest subsidies to firms hard hit by the pandemic and a bigger role for local special bonds in driving investment. The increase in support suggests Beijing is becoming more concerned about the growth outlook with economists expecting the central bank to provide more targeted support in coming months with measures such as cutting the reserve requirement ratio for banks again in the coming quarters. Purchasing managers' surveys released this month showed a bigger than expected drop in economic activity last quarter as the government imposed stringent measures to bring virus cases under control. Ministry officials are supporting this measure in various ways. An official from the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology said during a press conference that the Ministry is formulating one task list, one action plan, one development plan for the 14th five-year plan period up to 2025 for the development of SMEs. The chairman of the CSRC has also said that supporting and facilitating the development of SMEs is a key issue in the global economic recovery. He said that the CSRC will strive for a complete chain of the institutional system that allows the capital market to serve SMEs innovative growth in a faster fashion. But perhaps the most interesting piece of news to come out of China regarding SMEs was the launch of a new stock exchange in Beijing late last year as part of an attempt to support the growth of SMEs and the nation's capital markets. President Xi made explicit that the beneficiaries of the new stock exchange are to be firms cut from a different cloth from the tech giants whose fortunes have cooled recently and that service-oriented innovative SMEs are to be supported. Traditionally SMEs have struggled in comparison with larger companies to acquire loans from banks. The new stock exchange appears designed in part to redress that so that SMEs can connect with retail investors. In relation to real estate, China has also sought to support sectors which it considers to be more vulnerable than others. The central government was, for example, concerned about overheating in the property sector and had moved to cool the market. Policymakers imposed a series of measures to limit borrowing by developers and tighten standards for mortgage lending. At a key economic policymaking conference in 2021, government representatives spoke about promoting the healthy development of the property market and better meeting home buyers' reasonable demands, a signal seen by analysts that further easing of strict property policies could be in place in 2022. Economists at the bank Macquarie say that with the government's property policy focused on reducing wealth inequality and curtailing financial risks, there is only likely to be fine-tuning rather than a change in direction, and their stimulating the sector to support growth would be a last resort. Looking at the market historically, in 1978 China, of course, embarked on its major programme to update and open its economy. It encouraged the formation of rural enterprises and private businesses, liberalised foreign trade and investment, relaxed state control over some prices and invested in industrial production and the education of its workforce. Much previous economic research has suggested that China's economic development was largely due to capital investments such as investment in infrastructure, technology and so on. The capital stock grew by nearly 7% a year from 1979 to 1994, but the capital output ratio had hardly moved. So despite a large expenditure of capital, the production of goods and services per unit of capital remained about the same. This statistic suggests that capital plays only a constrained role. Productivity, however, increased at an annual rate of 3.9% from 1979 to 1994, compared with 1.1% from 1953 to '78. By the early 1990s, productivity's share of output growth exceeded 50%, while the share contributed by capital formation fell below 33%. Such explosive growth in productivity is quite extraordinary. The US's productivity growth rate only averaged 0.4% from 1960 to 1989, while the Asian Tigers hovered at around 2%, sometimes slightly more, for the 1966 to 91 period. Analysis of the pre- and post-1978 periods indicates that the market-oriented reforms undertaken by China were critical in creating this productivity boom. The reforms raised economic efficiency by introducing profit incentives to rural collective enterprises, which are owned by local governments but are guided by market principles, family, farms, small private businesses and foreign investors and traders. They also freed many enterprises from constant intervention by state authorities. The profit incentives appear to have had a further positive effect in the private capital market as factory owners and small producers, eager to increase profits as they could keep more of them, devoted more and more of their firm's own revenues to improving companies' performance. The reforms also expanded property rights in the countryside, which resulted in the creation of small, non-agricultural businesses in rural areas and granted greater autonomy to enterprise managers, giving them the power to set their own production goals, sell products at competitive prices and retain portions of the firm's earnings for future investment. And by welcoming foreign investment, China's open-door policy added more power to the economic transformation. Cumulative foreign direct investment, negligible before 1978, reached nearly 100 billion U.S. dollars in 1994. Annual inflows increased from less than 1% of total fixed investment in 1979 to 18% in 1994. This foreign money has built factories, created jobs, linked China to international markets and led to important transfers of technology. While capital investment is crucial to growth, it becomes even more potent when accompanied by market-oriented reforms that introduce profit incentives to rural enterprises and small private businesses. That combination managed to unleash a productivity boom that propelled aggregate growth. China's open-door policy managed to spur foreign direct investment in the country, creating still more jobs and linking the Chinese economy with international markets. Recently, the Chinese economy managed to navigate the trade war and COVID-19 without any large economic stimulus. In fact, it managed a strong economic recovery in 2021. How did that happen? The Chinese government has been slowing the expansion of its spending in comparison to GDP growth. In the first half of 2021, the government earned 9.6 trillion yuan, 1.48 trillion US dollars, and spent 9.4 trillion yuan. In the same five month period, in both 2021 and 2020, revenue was up 3.6% year on year on average, and spending rose 0.3% year on year. This indicated that the government had adopted a contractionary fiscal policy. In which it expanded its revenue more than its spending in the face of prevailing economic challenges. On the other hand, the growth of government spending was far outpaced by GDP growth, which jumped 5% year-on-year on on average in the first quarter of both 2021 and 2020 in real terms, or 7.1% in nominal terms. This contrasted starkly with China's fiscal policies between 2009 and 2010, In the aftermath of the global financial crisis and those of other major economies in the past two years. Secondly, exports which eclipsed domestic consumption and investment became the most significant of the three main drivers of the Chinese economy. In the first five months of both 2021 and 2020, exports expanded 11.3% year on year on average in Yuan terms, nearly double the speed of this year's first quarter GDP growth. The China US trade war in 2019 might have made Chinese exports bleak. However, China's prompt containment of the pandemic allowed it to quickly resume production and transport and use the comprehensive strength of its supply chains to outcompete its foreign rivals who were affected by the pandemic, increasing global market share of exports. It is, nevertheless, largely uncertain whether this trend can be sustained in the long term post COVID era. Thirdly, domestic consumption recovered despite the adverse impact of the pandemic. Retail sales in the first five months of 2021 climbed at an annual average of 4.3% year-on-year from the same period in 2019, lower than the annual average of 8% before the pandemic and GDP growth in the first quarter. This was due mainly to the impact of anti-epidemic measures on restaurants, In addition, retail sales of major consumer goods, including cars, petroleum and related products, household appliances and garments, fell from the same period in 2019, while retail sales of food, beverages, household commodities and communication appliances increased considerably year on year. All in all, the increase in retail sales of communication appliances could be the result of 5G smartphone replacements, while there were many other increases in the sales of necessities. High-priced non-necessities, such as cars, may still be experiencing a rebound from economic recovery. It's expected that restaurants and travel will continue to recover if the pandemic stays under control while easing anti-epidemic measures, while high-priced goods will pick up momentum if the economy sees stable growth in the future. The pandemic and anti-epidemic measures will therefore influence domestic consumption for at least one to two years. Finally, infrastructure investment through government spending had not become the primary source of economic growth which was expected. A consensus in the market was reached a year or so ago that the Chinese economy should be relieved from the pandemic through infrastructure investment. This was contradicted by an annual average growth rate of 5% in the first five months of the year from the same period in 2019. The figure, lower than the first quarter GDP growth, was due to minimal growth in larger projects such as transport, public facilities and communication, while noticeable increases were concentrated in smaller social welfare projects such as education and healthcare. The question of whether China can sustain this economic growth depends on a number of factors. These include, first, how much global trade will be left for China when its competitors fully recover from the pandemic. Secondly, the strength of Chinese exports may not be sustained if the country's industrial capacity is not enlarged with future investment, in which there's been little growth in the past half year. Finally, domestic consumption is the long-term driver of the Chinese economy, and it depends on the conditions of the pandemic. If the pandemic ends, there should be a continued recovery in consumption. If it persists, striking a balance between pandemic control and boosting consumption may be more challenging. Turning now briefly to the Greater Bay Area, this provides a wide range of business support programs and financial incentives to foster the region's growth. In the Outline Development Plan, which I mentioned earlier, released in 2019 by the Chinese government, Hong Kong, Macau, Guangzhou and Shenzhen, as I previously mentioned, were prioritized as core engine cities. Hong Kong plays a unique role in this regional complex, distinguishing the Greater Bay Area from other Bay areas in China. The four cities will facilitate the openness to foreign direct investment. One of the key advantages of the Greater Bay Area for both local and foreign investment are the currently low tax rates, encouraging higher mobility and easier connectivity of talents from all over the world. Usually, the income tax rate for an individual taxpayer can be up to 45%, but eligible individuals working in the Greater Bay Area can enjoy a preferential tax rate of 15%. Living allowances are also available for eligible high-level professionals and technical personnel adding further value to the relocation of strong talent. Business owners can benefit from uh, selling across borders through the free trade zones Incorporating within one of these zones comes with faster customs clearance which means that goods can be moved between free trade zones and overseas companies without paying taxes and duties in China. It's also easier to manage cross-border currency exchanges with banks. Many of the areas which China seems to have increased regulations in recently are also areas that foreign policy makers are concerned about but changes may be slower in other places. In China's system, things seem to happen rather faster, and regulatory tightening is, however, only one side of the equation. There are also sectors that are being supported by the government, such as semiconductors, green technologies, and consumer brands. So the government is attempting to restructure the economy to benefit the long-term development of the country. So there is plenty of entrepreneurship in China, driving growth outside the areas being targeted for reform by the government. In fact, China's economy is now almost entirely driven by private businesses. Almost 87% of employment in China is in private companies, and private companies also account for 88% of China's exports.
1: How do you think Russian-Chinese trade and economic relations are being built today?
0: Well, Sino-Russian ties have been close before. But in recent years, especially since 2012, there's been an increase in political, military and economic cooperation. From 2012 to 2017, ties between China and Russia strengthened to a relationship of collaboration with both countries investing in each other's large projects. In 2014, Russia reassessed its relationship with China and pursued much closer ties. China invested in Russian energy projects and Russia made some arms sales to China. Although trade and investment expanded, Beijing's economic cooperation with Moscow remained low compared to China's trade and investment involved with the rest of the world, even during this period of enhanced cooperation. Today, China and Russia appear to be working to put economics at the centre of their strategic partnership under China's Belt and Road Initiative. Chinese companies are building roads, railways, fibre optic, cables and other hard infrastructure across Eurasia. Russia's Eurasian Economic Union harmonizes customs processes to create a single market among Russia, Armenia, Belarus and Kazakhstan. The world, and especially where these efforts most directly overlap in Central Asia, needs both hard and soft infrastructure upgrades. To this effect, the two countries have repeatedly talked of linking the Belt and Road Initiative and EAEU, but so far we haven't heard much in the way of practical details. Chinese-Russian trade is currently highly concentrated in natural resources where Chinese and Russian interests most strongly overlap. Even as China and Russia cooperate in building digital infrastructure, each side appears to impose restrictions that limit data flows. Recently, Russia and China crossed the US $110 billion mark in the history of their trading partnership with the intention of doubling this figure by 2024. Their energy and strategic cooperation are at the highest point that has ever been, showcasing the deepening partnership between the two states. Russia's Energy Strategy 2030, increasing market penetration in Asia, and the 2014 trade deal between Gazprom and CNPC, which will export 38 billion cubic meters of gas annually to China by 2024, is clearly coming to fruition as exports to China continue to increase. In 2020, Russia was China's top oil and gas provider, making up 13% of China's total energy imports and 20% of Russian oil and gas exports. The exports totaled US dollars in 2020 and are expected to continue rising. The success of the energy cooperation may indicate the untapped potential in relation to Sino-Russian cooperation in further areas of trade. The Power of Siberia, which is a project instated under the umbrella of the Belt and Road Initiative, has been operating, transporting 10 BCM just in the past few months and with the new expansion project Power of Siberia 2, this energy cooperation is likely to continue to grow. This project spans the width of Russia in pipelines. As well as the construction of pipelines, infrastructure projects such as the Amur Gas chemical complex are evidence of greater geoeconomic integration. Analysts have predicted that China's energy imports from Russia will soon equal one-third of the entire EU's energy imports from Russia. As Russia continues to look east and penetrate the Asian energy market, China will no doubt remain a key export destination as well as a facilitator of the Russian energy trade. The Belt and Road Initiative is a transcontinental long-term policy and investment program launched by China in 2013 and aims at infrastructure development and acceleration of the economic integration of countries along the route of the historic Silk Road, aiming to promote connectivity of Asian, European and African continents and their adjacent seas, establish and strengthen partnerships among the countries along the Belt and Road and set up all-dimensional multi-tiered and composite connectivity networks and realize diversified, independent, balanced and sustainable development in these countries, according to China's policy statements. Russia and China signed a Declaration of Cooperation under the Belt and Road Initiative in May 2015 This further led to the 2018 signing of the non-preferential FTA between China and the EAEU, with predictions of it eventually evolving to include tariffs and significantly boost trade in the coming decade. The connectivity dimension of the Belt and Road Initiative, which seeks to improve land-based transportation links between the EU and China, is considered naturally aligned with Moscow's policy to unlock its transit potential in Eurasia. Of all the possible overland pathways between China and Europe, the one through Russia is the shortest. Also, the Eurasian Economic Union of Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Russia allows cargo to pass through the two customs posts on their way from China to the EU in Poland, Finland or the Baltic States. Thanks to policy incentives provided by China, this route is now flourishing with the volume of cargo transit growing by double digits every year since 2015. In the first 10 months of 2018 alone the volume of goods transported between China and Europe through Russia grew by 23 percent. Moscow and Beijing are discussing projects for upgrading and expanding existing transportation links including a high-speed rail connection between Moscow and Kazan with possible expansion to Europe and China, a highway from the Kazakhstan-Russia border to Europe, and several smaller projects to address existing bottlenecks.